It's God's Word, Proverbs chapter 18. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also. And with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It's not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. (laughs) A fool's lips walk into a fight. His mouth invites a beating. Fool's mouth is his ruin. His lips are a snare to his soul. Words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. But humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let's pray. Oh God above, this is your revelation. We ask that you would use it now 
that we would be transformed to know you, to love you, and to obey you. May you speak and may we hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You can learn a lot by listening to how someone describes someone or something else. I mean, you can figure out a whole lot about what that person thinks by how they describe the other thing. I mean, the best and most obvious and kind of comical illustrations many times are like young married couples. Get them to describe the same event and see how differently they describe it. The registering process. It's a totally different experience the way that it's described. In fact, actually, this is one of the great things to do with literature. When you read literature, to see how they describe different things, people, places, ideas. And it shows you so much about the author. You know, Lord of the Rings, that series written by Tolkien. Tolkien, a devout believer, uh, one of the guys who helped evangelize uh, C.S. Lewis, responsible largely for the evangelistic process and his conversion. Tolkien, when you read, it's interesting. The way he describes evil is it's so prevalent that in many cases you never actually interact with the bad guys because it's so constantly around you. It's really interesting. It's like he's describing Romans 1. That evil is so much a part of the world that there is goodness and beauty and grace kind of all within it, but it's it's overwhelming. In Sunday school, we talked about this. It's kind of constantly groaning. You see it all throughout, throughout creation. There's an interesting one in one children's series that's very famous and very influential. I'm not going to explain it in case some in here haven't read it. I don't feel like giving spoilers for the little ones. Uh, but if you ever want to know who the bad guys are, always look at the character who is described as the most holy, righteous, or good at the beginning. It's really intriguing. It's actually my my major beef with that entire series is that author's conviction is that good looks evil and evil looks good. The most righteous, the best, the, the actual hero of this series is the one who looks bad the entire way through. How we describe things so shows so much about what we believe about it. Do good guys look good or do good guys look bad? Do bad guys look bad or do they look good? For some of you in your childhood, it was easy. What color hat were they wearing? If it's a white hat, what are they? They're the good guy. If it's a a black hat, what are they? The bad guy. Unless it's a black hat with a little mask, at which point that's the really good guy. But it's interesting when we think about it for the church, how do we even think about categories for the church? And I personally, I love looking at kind of the larger cultural interaction of the way the culture describes the church. And I'll be honest with you, it's not positive most of the time. I mean, so often Christians are described as petulant and petty. These peevish little people who are constantly backbiting. They don't like anybody else and nobody likes them. And there's this kind of constant source of just peevish frustration. Which is shocking because that's the exact opposite of the Bible. We look at Proverbs 18, but first you turn to Ephesians.
I love Ephesians because Paul is framing out, in many ways, how the church is supposed to operate. This is a church that kind of has it. They understand what's going on. It's not the church in Corinth, which is just a disaster. It's not the church in Galatia, which is just a disaster. This is the church in Ephesus. They understand what life is supposed to be. And it's intriguing what he kind of writes to them as a, a snapshot, a portrait of what the church looks like. Chapter 1. Yay, I love you and you love me. Now that's my paraphrase. That's not exactly what he's saying, but it's close-ish. Chapter 2, you're probably familiar with. It's one of the most beautiful explanations of the gospel. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the ways of this world. You were this, you were this, you were this, but God. And this is a groundbreaking kind of shot across the bow of creation. But God, he didn't get frustrated or, or limited by any of your evil. While you were a child of wrath, he sent the Son of God to save you. It's this amazing thing. And, and maybe at the end you think, well, I could earn some of this. And no, he destroys that too. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may... But it's this gorgeous portrait of the gospel. You cannot save yourself. God has accomplished salvation in his son. You may be forgiven. You may be transformed. You may live a new life. And I I like how the ESV, the titles they have here. Two at the beginning there, it says, verse one, by grace through faith. And then immediately, what does he turn to? Well, we as God's people are one in Christ. We're not these petulant little peevish people who are constantly frustrated with each other. No, the church is designed to be as one of, if not the primary, byproduct of salvation in deep-seated friendship with each other. Chapter 2 presents the gospel. Chapter 3, the mystery of the gospel revealed. And what does he then turn to? It's the unity of the church. Chapter 4 is even titled, The Unity of the Body of Christ, How We All Get Together. Chapter 5, How We All Get Along Together. Chapter 6, How We All Get Along Together. The rest of the book, as consequences of the gospel, is how we get to be friends with one another. And friends, that's because God understands the fallen heart, the unrighteous heart, the sinful heart, hates Everyone, including himself. But upon redemption and the grace of God entering into the life of the saint, the byproduct is supposed to be deep-seated and rich friendship. In fact, actually, you can turn to Proverbs 18 now. That's where we were last week with Proverbs 17. Is how actually how I started the sermon. We looked at the Trinity And said, God is by nature a God of relationship. He is triune. He's Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect relationship. And the result of that is that he made humanity the same way. We are designed to be in relationship. Remember, Adam's there. He's named all the animals. He's like, I mean, they're cool and all. I mean, there's some really ugly things and some amazing things. But there isn't one that's really got me excited. And God's like, it's not good for man to be alone. Let me make you a partner that's designed for you. 
And so he makes women, makes Eve, to be in that perfect relationship. Today we're going to take that one step further and say that the essential nature of the church isn't just one of relationship, but it's one of deep friendship. One of deep friendship. And I'm going to recognize this is a sermon that in many ways is hard because I'm going to lovingly suggest I don't think many Americans actually understand what rich friendship actually looks like. And there's a large reason for this. Coming from postmodernism and a whole bunch of other reasons that I don't have time to explain now, we have taken a very narrow and reductionistic view of humanity. And we have reduced people primarily to one of two things, either their pleasures or their sexuality. You exist because of either your pleasures or your sexuality. And the problem is is that it makes everything become one of those two things. And it loses the ability to have deep and rich and full bonding. And you want to just quick example of that one. Go back and read Shakespeare's sonnets. You realize the vast majority of those were written to his male friends. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. It's written to his buddies. It's not written to his wife. It's not written to his girlfriend. It's written to his pals. But it's amazing how, you know, growing up, even when I was young, those were still understood to be about friendship. But what are those things viewed to be about today? His own personal deviant sexuality. Because we've lost this kind of concept as a culture. Instead, actually, here in uh, Proverbs 18, we begin to kind of see it's part of godliness, due proper godliness, obedience to the Lord. An essential element of the church is a deep-seated and rich understanding of friendship. Look at how it even starts. Again, introverts, I am stepping on your toes on purpose. Coming for the extroverts in a second, but it starts there. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Here's the person who's cutting themselves off from the body, who's removing themselves away, who's taking themselves and trying to make themselves alone. They isolate themselves against sound judgment. They don't have those relationships to inform them, to protect them, to guard them, and to keep them. Again, think this needs to be part of your DNA of how you think of the world. Remember how lions hunt gazelles. I mean, I learned this very early on. It it shaped so much of who I am. When the pack of gazelles go or ibexes or whatever they are, as long as they stay together, they're fine. But the moment the one takes that turn and goes the wrong direction, oh man, they're done. That's when the lions are like, yeah, dinner, that one. The person who's isolating himself is seeking his own desire because he's not going through that formative process of having his or her desires shaped by everybody else. And the men in the room can understand this. When you get married, you think about how much of a bozo you didn't even know you were. Until you have her wisdom come into the relationship and her beauty and her graces and her excellencies. And then you look back and you go, wow. I mean, 
Let's be honest. I thought I had a suspicion I was a bit of a moron, but now I really appreciate it. Because I didn't have her judgment helping refine and perfect mine. I'll be honest, there are some of us in the room, that's our temptation, isn't it? That the particularly the more tired or the more needy or the more fragile we get, the more we want to isolate ourselves. And again, going back to our illustration, that's like a gazelle going, you know what? I think I'm hurt. I should probably get away from the crowd. No, 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 no. That's, that's guaranteed trouble. Because then not only are you getting away from the rest of the body that's there to protect you, but you're doing it on three legs instead of four. You're doing it at half pace. You're doing it exhausted and weak and weary. You are easy pickings for the lions. Now, there is, interestingly, another extreme that's just as dangerous. It's where the chapter ends. <laughs> Wonderful bookends to frame how we think about this. A man of many companions may come to ruin. Here is the opposite extreme where maybe boundaries aren't kept, where boundaries aren't protected, where uh, somebody's maybe not quite so discerning in who they're friends with, and everybody comes in, and they have too many companions. And they listen to them all. And there, instead of running with a pack of gazelles, They're trying to run with the pack of gazelles and the pack of rhinos and the pack of elephants and all the different packs. And funny enough, they all don't have the same interest at heart. They don't protect each other the same way. They don't have the same goals. They don't have the same desires. They are not on the same team. For those of you that are more of a a more extroverted persuasion, this will be your danger. To so constantly surround yourself with people that you cease to benefit from it. Instead, the contrast there for the Christian is that closing uh, couplet. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, obviously, there's two elements to this. One, it is pointing us ultimately to Christ. Christ is that better friend. He is that better brother. He is the one who never leaves nor forsakes. But intriguingly, it's also painting a portrait of obedience for the saints. That when it comes time for us to describe the church, We should be able to say there's a friend there who sticks closer than a brother and mean it both about Christ and about the people we know and love. Both. To know that it means our Savior who's going to protect us and keep us, but to know that it means people in this room that we've built those deep and rich friendships with. Again, he kind of frames it with another illustration in verse 22, one that will be extremely significant in about five days. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 
Again, that, that richness of fellowship, that richness of friendship, that richness of intimacy, it's part of the design of God's mercy for his church. We're supposed to live together, to be friends together, to share our lives together, to know each other, to love each other. It's one of the consequences of the gospel. Now, I'm going to suggest that I think many of us, if not all of us, would say we, we probably in our deep kind of center core when we're quiet and being honest and maybe stayed up too late so we're actually going to say what we mean, would say we crave that. We crave to know and be known. And again, that's part of the image of God. That's how we're designed. We crave that kind of friendship, but for some of us, the reasons why we don't do it are either uh, we're afraid or we don't know how. I think a lot of times, though, what we end up doing is shooting ourselves in the foot by accident. (laughs) We're well-intended, and we're trying to pursue friendships like that, but we don't fully understand why they never seem to materialize the way that we want And I think this chapter is going to show forth one primary reason why our friendships fail with four very quick illustrations. You see, this chapter is framed out kind of on bookends, uh, this idea of friendship, this idea of intimacy, this idea of relationship, and it's suggesting all the way through that it's a good thing, it's a great thing, it's a wonderful thing, but there is a contrast held instead. And it is this, a person who only knows their own mind. It's weird. You wouldn't think that that's actually the exact contrast held against good and deep and rich friendship. But in this chapter, it's the one that's presented there. What is the contrast? What is the opposite in this chapter? Not everywhere else, but for what deep and good and rich friendship is. It's living inside your own head only. It's only knowing your own perspective. It's only knowing your own opinion. It's only knowing your own emotion set. And we have a whole bunch of different ways that this is illustrated. Start in verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Why? Because you're only living inside your own world. You're only living inside your own mind. And so you're making snap judgments. You hear a story and you immediately side with the first person talking. Because you're living inside of a very narrow perspective. Instead of waiting to hear a fuller picture, you're making a judgment call constantly. I mean, how often have you had this happen where... A friend comes to you and they need help and they, they tell you their story about what they need help. And you hear it and you think, oh my goodness, that's such a sad story. I desperately want to help you. And then you commit to helping them and once you kind of get into helping them, you realize, oh, there's a rest of the story. And now the rest of the story, right? And you find out, oh, oh, oh no. Again, think literature, how many great pieces of literature that happens where they commit to hearing the first, or to helping the first person they hear, and then about halfway through the book or three quarters of the way through the book, they find out, oh, this isn't the good guy I'm helping. 
I didn't find out the rest of the story. I, I just responded immediately with the little bits of information that I have. I'm going to suggest this is unbelievably poisonous in the Lord's church. Where if somebody does something or we see an event happen or see a person behave a certain way to take the limited amount of information that we have in our own head and to make a snap judgment on who that person is or how they're acting. I think that's part of what Paul is getting at when he's describing what love is. And he says, love is always hopeful. It's not making that snap decision. This person is that because they've acted this way in the little bit of information that I have. You don't know the rest of their story. You don't know the rest of what's going on. You don't know what's happening behind the scenes. This is also manifested in how we listen. This was in verse 2, the obvious and the easy, but it's good fun, isn't it? A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, only in expressing their own opinion. (laughs) You want the definition of a fool? They don't care about anybody else's ideas, anybody else's way of doing things. They only want to talk about their own opinion. I mean, you could really in many ways just say this is American culture in a snapshot right there. Most of social media in some form or fashion has been constructed for this very purpose. I have the right to talk and you have the right to listen to me. I'm afraid, my friend, that's not how it works. Or in verse 13. If anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. They're not getting all the information. They're not not listening to what other people are saying. They're not interacting with the other person's ideas. They're only giving their own ideas back. You can use the, the portrait of the young married where the man never listens. He never gets the benefits of his wife. He never learns from her wisdom and her ways. He never learns from the graces that God has given her. He only does it his own way. Ten years later, what will happen? He's just as immature as when he gets married because he's plugged his ears to hearing all of the good and godly gifts that God has given him and his spouse. And again, I would humbly suggest as we grow as a church, as we get bigger, this is going to be an increasing danger for us. To not feel like we're quite so invested in each other and to stop listening. You know, honestly, when there were 17 people in this room, it was really easy to listen to each other because it was all we had. The only thing we had, we had Christ and we had each other. It was pretty easy because if one family was sick, man, you could count us on two hands. You probably have fingers left over. But as we get more and more and more, it's easy to get a little bit less invested in each other, to care a little bit less, and to be more intrigued by talking than by listening. And then when we talk, well, oh no, there's problems that follow there. We have harsh speech. 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear the harshness breaks him. 
I love 16. 16 is a contrast to this harshness. Uh, This is the hardest verse in this chapter. Commentators just completely punt on it. Some say it's the perfect illustration of godliness, and some say it's the perfect illustration of sin. A man's gift brings room for, makes room for him and brings him before the great. And one commentator I think said it the best I, I heard was, the line between being winsome and pleasing and bribery is very small. And the point he's making is, look, if we're so charming and so gracious and so winsome, it's going to have positive yield for us. I mean, even the world catches this. You hear sayings thrown around like it's easier to catch flies with honey than vinegar. Well, yes, it's biblical. It's the the concept of learning how to be charming and charitable and not abrasive and needlessly harsh. Again, as the body grows here, this will be a challenge for us. And the consequence is listed in verse 19. Carelessness in this way offends a brother, and a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. And quarreling is like the bars of a castle. It, it builds up fortifications instead of de-escalates and creates joy. And finally, evil speech cuts at the heart of friendship. Verse 6 we got a chuckle out of it reading it. It's hysterical. A fool's lips walk into a fight. I mean, that's a great personification. You can see, I mean, it's like a children's cartoon, isn't it? A pair of lips on a pair of legs walking immediately into a fight. And then what immediately follows it? And the mouth invites a beating. They get beat down. But then the next verse kind of explains it a touch further. Maybe his mouth is a ruin. His lips are a snare. They're a trap. And what are they designed to catch? (laughs) His own soul. Now, most of us, I would say, well, we're classy enough. That's, I mean, we don't do things like that. Well, verse 8, oh, no. Oh, no. This is perfect for a fellowship meal Sunday morning, right? The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. And that, that is a staggeringly profound set of illustrations there. The person who's whispering, as another, we'll say gossip, but it's the same thing. The, the things that are said in private, like sometimes private prayer requests that are shared. Right? Well, we're going to pray for them, but not really ever. And they're treated like those little morsels of goodness. Some of you will behave this way shortly with the desserts that are set there in about 15 or 20 minutes. I only want a bite of all 14 different desserts. It's only a bite. It's a good little bite. It's my favorite little bite, but that's all I want is all 14 different desserts. The same thing. These words of the gossip we treat like these little nuggets of goodness and grace and delight that we take in. And the problem is, is the same thing with eating all 14 desserts is the calories have to go somewhere. The gossip words have to go somewhere and they go down into the inner parts of the body. You can't forget them quite so easily. In some ways, it's 
much worse to know things than to not know them. You want to know the, one of the worst jobs in this church? Counting the money. Because you can't forget that. You can't unsee it. You can't unknow it. You can't walk out of church and go, well, I left all that information there. I mean, I wish we had that ability to be able to take out, you know, the little SD hard drive or whatever, leave it at church and have that information that you never needed. It would be great. But gossip's the same way. You can't unhear it. And the point that's being made here is it does get into our bodies and into our souls and shapes how we interact with each other. Shapes how we think about each other. How we treat each other. Instead of submitting before the Lord. And I love how right in the middle of it, there's a solution to all of this. In fact, actually, there's a solution, and then later it's hinted at, a similar type of solution. Verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. The solution is to devote ourselves to the Lord fully, to devote ourselves to obedience to Him, to let Him be our identity, to let Him be our safety, to let Him be our righteousness, to let Him be the one who dictates the terms of our relationships, and then to submit and yield before Him. I'm going to lovingly suggest one of the reasons this church has been placed in this time and place and filled with the people that it has is so that we may demonstrate godly and holy friendship to the lost and dying world. Because there are few things quite so tangible that showcase what the new heavens and new earth will look like. Think about this for a second. You want to show a lost and dying world the consequences of the gospel. Now, you can't show them Jesus on the cross. The closest thing we have on that is the Lord's Supper. But you can show them the consequences and how we treat each other. As we be hopeful and kind and charitable and gracious, building deep and rich friendships, holy marriages, avoiding early judgments, listening to each other, trying to get rid of harsh and evil speech, And in doing so, building an aspect of our evangelism to be able to say, look, when you walk in these doors, there's something here that you need to want to be a part of. And how we are friends with each other and the people who come in these doors is extremely important. And it can only be done in Christ for those filled with the Spirit. May it be that we... Honoring the Lord in efforts to be obedient out of the salvation that he has already given us. May it be that we learn how to be good and godly friends. I pray in asking that God would give us this ability to build these kinds of friendships with each other and the people that God has placed in our path. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and his name is Jesus. And we pray that you would raise us up into being these kinds of friends as well. We confess that we have fallen short and too often we have been uh, perfect examples of these wicked things. Harsh words, people filled with their own opinions, those who make hasty judgments. Forgive us. 
Fill us with your spirit that we might live in life anew. For Christ's sake, amen.